We'll be in the book of Acts, chapter number 13 this morning. Acts chapter number 13. Uh, returning to our study through the book of Acts. And so we'll be going there this morning. So um, just I'm standing here debating in my mind whether or not to say something, and I, I think I have the green light to say it. So I'm going to go ahead and say it here. So I, I know that some of you may have thought, Pastor John, I'm not sure about that song Miss Jen sang. Some of you may have had that thought. A lot of, a lot of instruments in there, a lot of beat in the music, and Pastor John, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure about that song. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but this is what's on my heart to say, and I was standing up here arguing with the Lord whether or not I should say this, and so we're just going to go ahead and say it. And you say, well, well you know, I just all that, all that beating the music, and I'm just not sure. Well, let me say first of all that Miss Jen sent that to me, and I told her, yes, sing it, I love it, it's a great song. So that, first of all, that clarifies that. But second of all, many times we judge our music based on tradition rather than the Word of God. And whenever we base our, or judge our music based on tradition, uh, we will okay or disregard certain types of music not based on what the Bible teaches but on what we always heard growing up or what we were always taught was okay or what we prefer as a person and never give any consideration to the Word of God. Now the song that Miss Jen sang has a powerful, powerful gospel truth. It is scripturally sound and proclaims the doctrine of the Word of God. And actually, there are not in that song verse and chorus like we have in our hymn book. But if you ever look at the Bible's songbook in the book of Psalms, you'll find out that none of them have verse and chorus either. That it is a continual message about the goodness of God and what God can do, a continual message all the way through. So the flow of the song, I believe, more closely fits what we find in the Word of God, the way the song is put together. Now, there's nothing wrong with verse and chorus, nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong in any way you want to present your music. But just because one doesn't fit the standard quota that you're used to doesn't mean that it's a bad quota. And then you say, yeah, but what about all that music, Pastor John? Well, if you study the book of Psalms, and if you go back and listen to the devotions that I did last year whenever we were quarantined, you will find in the book of Psalms, which is the Bible's hymn book, you will find in the book of Psalms that David incorporated every instrument that was available in his day. Every instrument that was available, every musical instrument that was available, David incorporated it in his music. He left nothing out. Matter of fact, there is a psalm, I think it's Psalm 31, 33, somewhere in there. There is a psalm where it says in the heading before the psalm that the psalm was to be played upon Gittith. This is the harp that was to be used to, to play this song. This is what David preferred. It sounds best on this. And so you look up what, what is Gittith. Where did this harp come from? The Gittith was a harp that was designed and, and produced by the Philistines from the land of Gath. That's where this harp came from. And David said, you want this psalm to sound good, you play it on the Philistines' harp, and boy, I mean, it'll sound just exactly right. And so we need to be careful that we don't miss 
the powerful gospel message in a song because we're hung up on, well, that's just not my traditional style that I'm used to. Just be careful about that and make sure that you use your judgment and make your judgments according to the Word of God. Do I have guidelines for what music we use here? Oh, yes. I have guidelines. There have been songs that I've said, no, we don't want to sing that anymore. It's not scriptural. It, it doesn't teach true doctrine. We don't want to sing that anymore. And we have guidelines about what type of music goes with it. But as long as it fits the Bible, I like it. I enjoy it. And furthermore, I didn't know I was going to preach on music this morning. This is extra. <laughs> furthermore, I seriously have a problem when we have two playlists. I have a real problem with that. I have a playlist that I listen to in my car or when I'm exercising or when I'm by myself. And this is the music I listen to. But when I go to church, we can only sing songs written by Fanny Crosby. I personally have a real problem with that. If I listen to it privately, I ought to be able to listen to it at church. And if your playlist can't be played in God's house, you need to clean up your playlist. You need to make sure that the music you're listening to applies both places. And I think we can be hypocritical both ways. I have known people whose radio plays country music and rock music and every kind of ungodly music, but then they're the ones that raise a fuss when the preacher brings anything in besides the old hymns that are a couple hundred years old. There's a big hypo hypocrisy there. But I think there's also a big hypocrisy whenever I say, well, I can listen to Casting Crowns or I can listen to City of Light and I can listen to these gospel groups uh, on my own, but I can't listen to them at the church house. If it's good, God-glorifying music, it fits both places. There should never be a time that I'm afraid for the church people to hear what I listen to personally. So there you go. Completely unplanned sermon. And so I was standing here and I told you where to go and the Lord said, talk about the music. And I said, no, we're talking about acts. And he said, no, talk about the music. I said, no, acts. And he said, no, we're going to talk about the music. So I'm finally like, all right, here we go. So y'all take that for what it is. And if you, if you ever have questions and you're like, well, I don't know. I, I think Pastor John's doing this or doing that, or maybe you think I'm going liberal or you're concerned about something that's going on. Before you pack your bags up and go somewhere else, come see me. Talk to me. Let me explain why we're doing what we're doing, what, what principles and guidelines we're following. Save a lot of confusion before you call up all your friends in the church and say, hey, I think Pastor John. No, don't do that. Come see me. Let's discuss what's going on in the Lord's house. My heart's desire, my goal, what I want to, for the church of God is that we are a place that glorifies God and sees sinners come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that I do, every decision I make is centered around, is it glorifying God and is it bringing the lost to a place of salvation? And so that is what motivates us. Acts chapter number 13, the Lord says we can go here now. All righty, Acts chapter number 13. Coming back to our 
study through the book of Acts. And we'll be uh, back in Acts for a few weeks as we head towards Mother's Day and then Lord's willing uh, from Mother's Day to Father's Day. I'm uh, working on putting together a series on the family and hopefully Lord willing we'll be preaching on that from Mother's Day to Father's Day. Uh, but leading up to that we're going to return to the book of Acts, preaching through the book of Acts for the next few weeks. And You know there's several things I love about preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, several things that are good about just taking a book of Bible and preaching through it verse by verse. One thing is uh, a lot of times uh, we cover passages of Scripture that we would otherwise just breeze past. Uh, I believe Brother Tim made the mention during the revival that there are certain passages that all preachers preach on. And you know what? If you just preach what you want to preach, many times there's many passages of Scripture that we just completely miss. So I like that we uh, look at many different passages of Scriptures that maybe we wouldn't otherwise consider. Also, I love preaching through books of the Bible because when you see the whole picture, you see how the Bible complements itself. Uh, you see how the Bible strengthens itself and you can see the Bible as a whole. But probably my most favorite uh, uh, thing about preaching through the Word of God is the multitude of applications that we find when we simply preach through the Scripture. Uh, uh, like the message today, as we look at this message today, we're going to be looking at some prophetic confirmations uh, that will confirm in our heart uh, that Jesus Christ uh, is uh, the Son of God. As we look at this, we're going to see some practical applications uh, as to how we are to live our life uh, as a Christian. Uh, and then also in this message today, we're going to see an invitation to those who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just preaching through the Word of God and we find that it is practical, it's applicable, it fits. Boy, I tell you, we live in a generation where many people pick certain passages of Scripture and that's all they know about the Bible. Whenever you dig into the Bible word for word, chapter for chapter, book for book, you will find that this entire book applies to me. And so uh, looking through the book of Acts this morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's uh, message of salvation uh, that he preached uh, in the synagogues and his missionary journeys. Uh, I believe that this is actually a great follow-up to the uh, sermon series we just finished for Easter because in Paul's message, he will summarize all that encompasses the message of Easter and he'll show us that the same message of salvation that we preach today is the same message that Paul was preaching uh, when he set out on his first missionary journey. And why is it that we're still preaching the same message? Because there is no other way for a man to be saved except through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so look with me in Acts chapter number 13. Acts chapter number 13 we'll begin our reading in verse number 16. The Bible says, uh, Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand well, let's back up to verse 15. You see, uh, in verse number 15, and after reading of the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent unto them, that is Paul and Barnabas, saying, Ye men of brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men, and, men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. 
And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwelt at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, it is good to be in your house. Lord, I thank you for your people. I thank you, Lord, for those that have gathered together. And oh Lord, those that want to worship you and glorify you. And Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, our ability to look into your word and preach your word. And Father, as we look at this message that Paul preached, and Lord, we make application to our life, I pray, dear Lord, that you will take this word, and Father, that you will use it. Uh, Father, Lord, that it might be a help to us. Uh, uh, Lord, as Christians, that it will encourage us. Uh, it will challenge us. And Lord, if there be one here lost, uh, uh, Lord, that they will receive the invitation to come to Christ. And Father, I pray that you'll bless the message. Thank you, Lord for your goodness to us. Bless now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen 
and amen. Here in the book of Acts, chapter six, uh, chapter 13, verse 16 through 41, we have a record of a sermon that the apostle Paul preached. So this is word for word record of what Paul said and what he was preaching to the people. And so we want to take just a couple minutes this morning and look at this message and see if there is any application to us from this message. The first thing that we see is Paul introduced his message there in verse verse 16 down through verse number 23, Paul brings to light the preparation for the Messiah. Now remember that Paul is preaching to a group of people who were steadfastly followers of the old covenant. And Paul is coming before these men and women in the synagogue and he is preaching to them that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. And so in order for them to understand what it is that he is going to be preaching to them. Paul wants to go all the way back. He understands their background. He was once one of them, so he wants to go back and he wants to start at the beginning and convince them that Jesus is the Christ. You know, oftentimes whenever we tell someone about the Lord Jesus Christ, we are guilty of assuming that there are basic parts of the scripture or the gospel story that they already know. And many times we will start all the way towards the end. We will start with telling them, you, you know that Jesus died for you. And we will start there when many times we would be more effective if we would start at the beginning. I always love whenever I share the gospel to start in the book of Genesis to tell them why God created them, to tell them what man did, to tell them how the curse of sin came upon all mankind and bring them all the way through before we give them the gospel story that Jesus died for them. Many times it's helpful to lay the background and so that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is backing all the way up and he's going to show these people in the synagogue how that God was preparing Israel to receive a Messiah. Paul points out a few things about this preparation. First we see in verse number 17, God's promise to Israel. In verse number 17, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with a high arm he brought them out of it. We see that Paul highlights God's promise to Israel. We see here that Paul shows them that Israel was a chosen people. Israel was was an exalted people. Israel was a delivered people. God had said, this is what I will do for you. And God had came through on his promise. Paul is preaching to this group of people. He said, I want to start off by letting you know that God chose you out. God made these promises and God came through on every one of his promises. Paul then directed their attention in verse number 18 to God's patience with Israel in preparing Israel to receive a Messiah. First, God made a promise to them. Secondly, God was patient with them. In verse number 18, it says, And about the time of 40 years, I love this phrase, suffered he their manners in the wilderness. In other words, the Israelites had some bad manners and God put up with them. God 
was patient with the bad manners of the children of Israel. The children of Israel had a spirit and a mannerism that was much less than was desired, and yet God was patient with them. God had proven himself true. Israel was a chosen people. God had chosen the people of Israel. God had exalted the people of Israel. God had delivered the people of Israel. God had proven true. And yet Israel displayed a spirit that was anything but appreciative and grateful of what God had done. You know how many times have you and I been guilty of displaying a spirit or an attitude that was anything but grateful and appreciative for what God was doing in our life. We grumble, we complain, we get disgruntled, we get upset, and yet God is patient with us. Yet God is patient with us. God was patient with the children of Israel. Let's look quickly at some of their bad manners. When we look at the children of Israel in the wilderness, we find, first of all, that they were dissatisfied with their life. Now, we're looking at the children of Israel, but as we look at these, I challenge you to look at your own heart and see if you fit into any of these categories. They were dissatisfied with their life. God parted the Red Sea. They wanted water. God gave them water. They wanted food. God gave them manna. They wanted quail. And on and on and on it went the entire time. They were dissatisfied with their life. And because they were so focused on what they did not have, they totally missed everything that they did have. You know one of the biggest tricks of the devil to get you dissatisfied with your life so that you are discontent and unable to enjoy life with God is the devil gets your focus on what you don't have and takes your eyes off of what you do have. Children of Israel completely missed everything that God was doing for them because they were so focused on what they did not have. You know what, whenever the devil comes into your life uh, and he begins to try and distract you and get you thinking about what you don't have, uh, he gets you focused on whatever other people have uh, that you wish you had uh, and you find yourself getting discontented, uh, you just need to disengage uh, from those thoughts uh, and you need to begin to focus uh, on what you do have. The children of Israel were dissatisfied with life because they constantly were focused on what they didn't have. Not only were they dissatisfied with their life, God was patient with them. We see that God continued to be patient with them when they became disgruntled with their leader. God had chosen Moses. He had trained Moses. He had shaped, molded, and prepared Moses for this position of leading Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Moses was the man that God had prepared for this time and this place in the history of Israel. Moses was chosen of God. He was following God. He was doing his best to obey God and accomplish what God had called him to do. But all the children of Israel could do was grumble and complain about what their leader was doing. They were dissatisfied with their life. They were disgruntled with their leader. But then God continued to be patient even when they were disobedient to God's law. Yes, God had to deal with them. Yes, we read accounts of the judgment that God had to pass. They suffered the consequences of their choices. But God never disowned them. God never cast them out. God never gave up on them. He had made a promise to Israel and he patiently dealt with them despite 
their unfaithfulness to him. You know, this is a great reminder that there may be times in our life when we want to give up on God. I'm sure you've been there. Times in your life when attempting to live this Christian life seems to be more trouble than it's worth. There may be times when you're like, why am I even trying to do what's right? It seems that the more I try to do what's right, the worse it gets. Why am I even trying to live for God? Why am I even trying to follow God? The children of Israel over and over and over again became disobedient to the law of God. They made golden calves. They disobeyed what God had told them to do. They rebelled against the principles of God over and over and over again. They were ready to give up on God. They were ready to quit being the chosen ones of God. They were ready to return to Israel, but it didn't matter how they felt. It didn't matter how they were acting. God never, ever gave up on them. You know what? There may be times when you feel like giving up, but let me promise you, God's not going to give up on you. There may be times when you feel like quitting the Christian life, but let me tell you, God is not going to give up on you. There might be times when you've decided that there's no sense in living this life anymore, that we might as well throw in the towel and return to our old life and do the old things that we used to do. You remember the children of Israel, they're in the wilderness and that God is blessing them and God is meeting their needs and they said we would rather go back to Egypt and eat the leeks and the garlic uh, they began to think uh, that that old life was better. Uh, but I want to promise you uh, that there was nothing about Egypt uh, that was better than where God had them right now. Uh, there may be times that you begin to think, uh, I'm going to go back to the old life. Uh, and the devil takes the blinders uh, and he covers in your mind uh, the bad things of your old life. Uh, and he highlights what you enjoyed uh, and says, just give up on God and go on back. Uh, and you say, I'm going to go on back and live the old life. Let me tell you something. When you get back there, although you've rebelled against God, although you've dishonored God, although you've disobeyed God, and you are back there, God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that goes for when things are going good. That goes for when things are going bad. And you are trying to turn your back on God. And God is constantly going to be on your doorstep letting you know that He is not ever giving up on you. The best thing you can do is just stay in the saddle and let God continue blessing you. We see here that the children of Israel were dissatisfied. They were disgruntled. They were disobedient. Yet God continued to be patient because he had made a promise to them. Then in verse 19 to 23, we see God's provision for Israel. God's provision for Israel. Not only had he promised them, not only had he been patient, but God had made promises and he's faithful to provide. In verse 19, Paul's telling these people that God had provided Israel with victorious power and abundant dwelling. In verse 19, this is after they came out of the wilderness. They've crossed the Jordan. They've went into the promised land. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. God gave to them victorious power and an abundant dwelling. You know what? If you will be faithful to God, He will be faithful to you. Not only had He provided 
victorious power and abundant dwelling, but in verse 20 to 22 we see that he provided them with qualified leaders. We see that he gave them judges for 450 years. They desired a king. He gave to them Saul. After Saul turned his back on God, he, God took Saul off of the throne and placed David on the throne. God continued to provide for his people. And then in verse number 23, he reconfirmed that he would provide them with the promised Savior. In verse 23, speaking of David, he said, Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus Christ. We see here that God made a promise. God was patient and God provided for Israel. After Paul had reminded the people how God had prepared Israel to receive a Messiah, Paul then reminds them of the proclamation of the Messiah. So he told them, look, y'all know God has been preparing Israel to receive a Messiah for a long time. You don't believe that it's Jesus, but I'm about to prove to you that it is Jesus. First, I want to remind you that God has prepared you for this. And then in verse 24 to 37, Paul reminds them of the proclamation of the Messiah. Not only was it evident that God had prepared them, God had sent messengers to proclaim the arrival of this Messiah. Paul reminds them of the forerunner, uh, John the Baptist. In verse 24 and 25, Paul speaks of the John the Baptist whose entire ministry was devoted to telling people that the arrival of the Messiah was now. And Paul reminds them of that. He said in verse 24, when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. So Paul reminds these people, he said, there was someone who came, who proclaimed that the Messiah was here. And then Paul commences himself to proclaim the Messiah. He said, there was the forerunner, John the Baptist. He said, and now I am here today as the follower. John pointed you to Christ. I am pointing back to Christ. John told you that he was here. I'm telling you that he was here. The forerunner said, look, he is here to redeem you. I am saying, look, don't, be, look, don't look for someone else, but recognize that your Messiah was the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in verse 26 down through verse number 37 that Paul proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul proclaims the authenticity of Jesus as the Messiah by offering three undeniable proofs. We see in uh, Acts uh, 13 verse 27 that Paul speaks of the proof uh, of prophecy. He said, For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophet, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. Oh, I love what Paul says right here. Paul said, The leaders, spiritual leaders in Jerusalem who you looked up to, they didn't know Jesus like I know Jesus. And every Sabbath in their synagogues, they read prophecies that said they would condemn him. And you well know that they condemned him. 
You know what? It just excites me. Every time I see the devil try to throw a dart at the Lord Jesus Christ and he rises above it. Uh, here they are every Sabbath uh, reading the prophecy that says uh, that uh, Jesus, uh, the Messiah, will be condemned by the religious rulers. Uh, and then the religious rulers are trying to condemn Jesus, not recognizing that in doing so they are fulfilling the very prophecy in the Word of God. They are bringing it to pass. Paul said, I want to prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah by the simple fact that your leaders who says he's not the Messiah have proven that he is the very Messiah. He is the Redeemer. Paul then proclaims Christ through the proof of his death. Not only did he prove him through prophecy, but he proved him through his death. In verse 28 and 29 it says, And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Paul said, I want to point out to you the proof of his death. First of all, they found no fault in him. Now remember, Paul's been referring all the way back to what they believed from the Old Testament and they knew from the Old Testament that it was to be a sinless, spotless lamb. Paul didn't make any uh, uh, claims on his own wisdom. He said they... Your leaders said they couldn't find any fault in him. He was sinless and he was spotless. Yet you said to crucify him. But then I love the first, verse, first phrase of verse 29. When they had fulfilled all that was written of him. Catch that phrase. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him. Every prophecy, every promise, everything that God said he would accomplish by putting Christ on the tree, they fulfilled it. They complied. They fell right in place. They did exactly what the prophets said they would have done the whole time trying to annihilate Jesus. They were doing nothing but confirming that he was the Christ. And then Paul gave them the proof of his resurrection. I love verse number 30. But God raised him from the dead. Last Sunday we celebrated Easter Sunday. You know what? No story of salvation is complete without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and he died on Calvary to shed his blood and that blood is used to wash away the sins of man. But the resurrection was necessary because whenever he rose up out of that grave three days later, he proved that he had the power over death, hell, and the grave. He proved that he he was qualified to offer to you eternal life. He proved that he was able to make a promise that one day we would be resurrected and taken to an eternal home. God is able to do what he promised. He proved his power. He proved his deity. He proved his dominion when God raised him from the dead. Paul said, I'm trying to convince you people that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I want you to know that you fulfilled the prophecies. I want you to know that you fulfill what God said would happen at the cross and I want you to know that God has raised him from the dead. There is no question that Jesus is the Christ. If there's someone listening here this morning, this same message still applies. It still applies. The reason that people will hesitate to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is because they're not sure that he truly can redeem them. 
Paul was telling this group of people, he said, I want you to know that Jesus is the Redeemer. It has been proven that He is the one that can give life. Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But then last of all, in verse 38 down through verse number 31, we see the pardon of the Messiah. Again and again, Paul proclaimed Christ by showing the proof of his deity, his fulfillment of prophecy, his complete atonement. And after Paul had thoroughly confirmed the position of Jesus as Messiah and the Redeemer of mankind, Paul concludes his sermon by telling those listening of the pardon that the Messiah offered. We see here that Paul points out three things about this pardon that's just as true today as it was then that Paul points out to the people listening in the synagogue. First of all, Paul tells them in verse number 38 that this pardon is available for all. It's available for all. He says, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preached the forgiveness of sin. I want you to know that through this man, through Jesus Christ, salvation is available to everyone. Salvation has been made possible. It has been available. But next, in verse number 39, Paul confirmed that this pardon was not only available, but it was applicable to all. And by him all that believe are justified from all things. Paul says it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what part you've had in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ up to this point. It doesn't matter if you had a part in His crucifixion. It doesn't matter if you had a part in condemning Him. It doesn't matter how you have felt about Him up to this point. I want you to know that this pardon that the Lord Jesus Christ offers is applicable to every person. He will justify. He will cleanse. He will wash. He will make every person whole who puts their trust in him. But then Paul finishes his sermon with a warning to all. He said in verse 40 and 41, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Now all through his message, Paul's been showing them how what the prophets said came to pass, what the prophets said came to pass over and over again. And now Paul says, I want to warn you you don't want that to come upon you which was spoken of by the prophets. And what is it that Paul is speaking of in verse 41? Here is the passage he is referring to. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Paul said, I'm going to close my sermon with a warning. Be warned that if you hear it and despise it, judgment is coming. There is a pardon that's available to all. There is a pardon that is applicable to all that will wash away your sin and make you a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, but I want to warn you, if you hear the message and you reject it, if you hear the message and you don't respond and you don't give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a judgment that will follow. Paul was just starting out on his missionary journey. There was a church in Jerusalem. There was a church in Antioch. 
God had said, Christ had told the people, he had said, take my gospel into the uttermost parts of the world. The church at Antioch said, we need to get the gospel and we need to take it. We need to go somewhere else. Paul and Barnabas, they prayed over them. They boarded a ship. They set off and they began to go and preach the gospel. They began to take the gospel. And what is the gospel that they preached? The gospel that they preached is that Jesus is the redeemer of mankind. The gospel that they preach is that his redemption is available for everyone. The gospel that they preached is either repent or perish. The gospel that they preached as they began their missionary journey is the same message that we preach today some 2,000 years later. Repent or perish. You hear the gospel preached over and over and over again here from this pulpit. All last month we preached sermon after sermon after sermon about the call of God and the invitation of God and the desire for sinners to come to know God. We've preached it and we've preached it and we've preached it and yet there are those who do not respond to the gospel, the message of the Word of God is this, repent or perish. God is not heartless. God is not unkind. God is not looking to throw you in hell. It is not what he wants to do. The Bible says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He has made a way of salvation. He died on the cross. He resurrected. He has made it as simple and as easy as possible for you to put your trust in him. The last thing he wants to do is send you to hell. But if you persist in rejecting him, if you persist in resisting him, the word of God teaches that you will perish. Paul preached this message to religious people. Paul preached this message to heathens. Paul preached this message to everyone he encountered. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or you will perish. Today, it is the message of the church. Repent or perish. I believe we have many people, many people, who maybe they're religious, but maybe they're completely lost, who need to respond to the call of the Word of God to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask each of you to stand. Miss Debbie's going to make her way to the piano. What Paul was preaching 2,000 years ago was true then and it's true today. I love verse number 42 following the end of Paul's message. It says, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue after Paul had preached, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. They said, We need to hear this again. Paul preached it. It was true then. It's true today. It applied then. It applies today. The only hope of escaping eternal damnation is to put your belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your only hope. This morning I'm going to give a two-part invitation. One, I want to invite Christians. And I want to say, are you living according to the gospel and are you proclaiming the hope of the gospel? Where are you at in telling the lost world to repent or perish and then unsaved? If you're here this morning, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Or maybe you're not sure if you've ever accepted Christ as your Savior. If you're here this morning and you don't know for sure you're on your way to heaven, as Miss Debbie plays, I want to invite you to come to this altar and let us take the Word of God and show you how you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and the relationship between you and God has been restored.